Right. So, um, so we've been talking about the Mashiach past uh, few sessions. We had a session where we talked about the Rambam's view, a session where we talked about Ramban. Really, they represent the two models that you have of the times of Mashiach because those are the two possibilities. Basically, it's either a natural kind of a... Uh, evolution of society and of the Jewish people to a point where they are ready for redemption and then the redemption happens through natural means. That doesn't mean that there won't be miracles because obviously there's going to be there's going to be certain miracles along the way, but it's not a change of the way the universe works. It's not going to be like a change in the laws of nature that all of a sudden some fundamental permanent difference from the way that the world runs today. The difference will be in the way that human beings behave and the values that we have. That's what the change is going to be. According to the Rambam, the Ramban said, no, no, actually, we're basically going to revert to what it was like before the Chet of Adam HaRishon, which means it's going to be, a t- there's not going to be any more dying. There's not going to be any more, you're not going to need to eat or drink or reproduce anymore because nobody's going to die anymore. And you're just going to live forever the way that Adam Arishon would have, uh, you know, lived eternally if he hadn't done chit et sadat. Now, obviously, in the case of Adam Arishon, he would have had children because the whole idea was for him to populate the earth. But I guess at a certain point, the Ramban's idea is at a certain point he would have stopped. And I guess it would be, you know, that's what would happen. So that, that's the Ramban's view. Ramban has a more supernatural view. Rambam has a more natural view. Um, in the end... We don't have to make a decision about which one of those is correct because it's not up to us. We'll see what happens. Everyone has the same kind of a vision of the end game of a world where the focus is on service of Hashem and all other competing uh, pursuits or wrong value systems or materialism or idolatry. All that's going to fade away and is going to uh, instead be replaced by an, uh, a world that will be a, a much better world that everybody agrees on. Now, um, and also everybody, by the way, agrees that the Mashiach is not going to be a supernatural figure. Nobody thinks that. So nobody in Judaism thinks that the Mashiach is the son of God or is an angel that comes down from heaven or any other weird concept. Everybody agrees the Mashiach is a regular person in Jewish tradition. So even the Ramban, who says that the changes that are going to happen in the world when the Mashiach comes are changes of a really fundamental nature in the way that everything operates around us, even so, he agrees that the Mashiach himself is going to be a person. Right? It's not going to be a divine being, not going to be any kind of angelic being, not going to, be, not going to have any superpowers. It's not going to be like that. So um, that, that everybody agrees on in, in the Jewish tradition. In fact, I, I don't know if I mentioned this in one of the classes, but the Ramban, uh, I know I've mentioned it before, the Ramban was forced to have a dispute uh, with uh, a um, uh, priest. I know I've mentioned it in past classes. He was forced to have a, a dispute. It was called the disputation. With a, yeah, yeah, I always do. Yeah. With, a, with a priest who um, ha- was actually a, a former Jew who had converted to become Catholic. And the king, uh, actually, I mean, the priests basically prevailed upon the king to force this rabbi to debate a priest. And, you know, they would decide what the true religion was. But what they always would do in these medieval disputations is that they would make restrictions that the Jews weren't allowed to criticize anything that the Christians said. So they couldn't have, they had no choice, they would lose every time. Or like, you know, they weren't able to defend themselves because it would be offensive to Christians to say that Judaism was true. So then how can you have a real debate? So it happened to be 
that in the case of the Ramban, the Ramban said, I'm not going to participate unless I'm allowed to speak. And so the king, who was, I guess, a pretty decent person, allowed the, so said the Ramban gets freedom of speech in the debate. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. It's not a real debate. And so they had the debate. And unfortunately, well, I mean, you know, from our perspective, you know, un- from a practical perspective, maybe not from the ultimate perspective, but unfortunately, the Ramban won. And so that put his life in danger. So he had to leave. He had to run away. He ended up coming to, to Israel after that. And that's where the Ramban synagogue and everything comes from because he came to, he came to Israel um, the, uh, you know, after that. But uh, the promise was that, no, 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 the king is going to protect him and he doesn't have anything to fear. But it wasn't so simple because they were threatening him. So he had to run away because he did too well. Even the king said in disputation, I never heard somebody who was so wrong, but they argued so well. Meaning, you know, the king had to say that he was wrong because the king is a Christian. You know, he's not allowed to admit that the Ramban is, is correct. He said, I never heard anybody who was wrong, but argued in such a persuasive way. And the Ramban himself in the disputation says, you know, if not for the fact that you basically had these ideas drilled into your head from when you were a child, you'd never believe that God impregnated a woman and then she had a baby and the baby grew up and then was killed. Like all of this stuff sounds like nonsense to uh, any objective listener, but because it was, you're, you're raised on it, so you believe it. Anyway, the Ramban has this disputation. It's interesting to read it. In that he does talk about a little bit of his ideas about Mashiach because the question comes up, is JC the Mashiach or not? Right? And so they, they discuss that. And so he speaks about that uh, along the way. And it's, it's available. You can get it in English. It's called The Disputation at Barcelona. And you, I mean, in Hebrew, obviously, it's better, but it's in English, the disputation at Barcelona. And there's also a, mo- a movie was made out of it that I think I've recommended to different classes before, and I'm sure that the link has gotten around from one class or another. But uh, there is a, a movie that was, there was a play made out of it, actually, and the play was made into a movie. The movie has very low production quality. However, it's a really good movie. Um, the, um, they portray... The, I think the way that they portray the two sides and the way that Ramban is portrayed in the, in the movie is just really great, even though he doesn't say exactly what the Ramban actually said in the disputation, but like the spirit of it is very on target and um, it really gives you a sense of uh, what it might have been like. So it's worth watching. It's called The Disputation, I think, is the name of the movie. And I think it's on YouTube for free. It's a very, it's all filmed in some dank, dark palace. It actually feels like you went into medieval times when you watch it. Like, that's the production quality, but I don't know if that was on purpose or not. But anyway, it's actually a really good movie. Um, In any case, moving on from the Ramban. So then last time we talked about the Sanhedrin and how the Halakha, right now we have Halakha that is, to a certain extent, has become frozen in time because the Talmud up until the times of the Talmud, the halacha was still flexible. It was still subject to interpretation. Chachamim could still reinterpret and, and develop halacha to meet new challenges or to accommodate new insights. It wasn't frozen. The halacha that we have now is frozen, meaning that we can only uh, apply the law as it is formulated in the Talmud Bavli, basically, the Babylonian Talmud, and we can interpret the Talmud and we can try to apply it to circumstances of today, but we can't change the laws of the Talmud. So even if we think that, let's say, a certain decree that the rabbis made wouldn't really be relevant today, or a certain way that the halakha was formulated was based on circumstances of the time that wouldn't pertain today, or new information has come to light, as I mentioned last time about, let's say, uh, 
de- people who are uh, you know are hearing impaired or deaf or anything about uh, anything that they based their halachic formulations on, which maybe we have updated information. They wouldn't be able, we wouldn't be able to do anything about that. And that's why so many of the halachot, oftentimes we find ourselves saying, oh, well, this is because in the old days things were this way or things were that way. And I mentioned last time, you know, when you start mentioning Barech uh, Alenu in your Amidah is based on, you know, the fact that it's, in, that it's in December, really it's supposed to be at the end of November, but it has to do with the fact that they switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar and halacha didn't switch calendars. It stayed with the old calendar because that was the calendar that they had 2,000 years ago, okay? So, you know, it's not really a very compelling reason. So when you explain that to people, they're like, you know, that's actually the reason, you know? They can't believe it, but things are fixed in, 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 in time. So that would change in the times of Mashiach. You would have a Sanhedrin. A Sanhedrin has the ability to now interpret the Torah and make, a, make the Torah a living Torah again instead of a Torah that is um, sort of uh, fossilized and that we have, to, uh, we have to work around some of the uh, aspects of the halacha in applying it to today. We, we don't have the in, independence of, uh, uh, of uh, thought and of application of the halakha that they had. That's what we talked about last time. Now, the, la- the, the piece that we, we didn't really touch on that I had, had in mind to talk about, but we, we didn't talk about was about the Beit HaMikdash because I think that um, the other component of the times of Mashiach that maybe a lot of people have difficulty relating to, that's how I would say it. They have difficulty relating to the idea of the Beit HaMikdash or what is really the value of the Beit HaMikdash uh, for us as modern Jews. And this is a problem that is not only, uh, not only a problem that we experience when we talk about Yom HaMashiach, but it's really a problem that we think about all the time because we pray for the rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash all the time. We have many observances that commemorate the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. We have Tisha B'Av, of course, and our Tfilot, and especially on Shabbatot and Chagim, we pray for the restoration of the Beit HaMikdash and the bringing of the Korbanot. Really, it's actually incorporated into our prayers every single day. In one way or another, we mention it all the time, and yet we've definitely become desensitized to that. Like any other... Uh, any other thing that you uh, that you become uh, used to it, and you sort of forget that uh, it, we, it's not that we forget. We never experienced Judaism with a bit of Mikdash, so we didn't. You know, we we've always lived without a bit of Mikdash. So the idea that it's something's missing is hard to uh, it's hard to relate to for us. Uh, in the same way that uh, many aspects of diaspora Judaism of, of practicing Judaism outside of Israel that you become used to and you think are the baseline Judaism are actually not. So if I'm here in America, I have to always find myself explaining that, oh, the reason why we sit in the Sukkan Shemini Yatzeret and two days of Yom Tov and all these things are so confusing and don't really make any sense and don't really fit with the way that the Torah actually says you're supposed to observe the holiday. And then when you're in Israel, it's different. So a lot of things that you, uh, that you, you get into your mind about what Judaism looks like and how it's supposed to be are based upon, you know, the memories that we grew up with and they're not really necessarily based upon the idea. And I think that that's true about many things. It's true about uh, envisioning a different kind of world. It's hard to envision a different kind of world. But the Beit HaMikdash in particular, because it's such a part of our liturgy and our tefillot and, and we even mourn over it and people are like, what are we mourning for? A building that was destroyed, you know, we... It's hard for people to, to connect to. So we want to understand what is the function of the Beit HaMikdash? What is the purpose? Why are we praying for it? What is the value? Why do we need it? Why do we want it? And, uh, uh, you know, what is really absent from, uh, you know, from Jewish life without the Beit HaMikdash such that the, it's so important that one of the things that the Mashiach is going to do is, is building the Beit HaMikdash. So if we, if we look from the beginning of history, you have to start from the beginning of the beginning. 
that from the very outset of Jewish history, the idea that there's going to be a special location where Hashem's name will be proclaimed to the world goes all the way back to the times of Avraham Avinu, actually. Because Avraham Avinu was told to sacrifice his child, sacrifice Yitzchak, and they went to a mountain, and that mountain is called Hara Moriah, which is also known today as the Temple Mount. You know, that was where the Akedah took place. And, um, and so on that mountain was where Avraham Avinu said Hashem, that Hashem is going to be revealed in this place. And uh, that it will be said about this place uh, that on this mountain, Hashem's presence is revealed. So the idea that there was going to be a location that would represent God's presence on earth goes all the way back to Avraham Avinu. But it's not just that. When the Jewish people come out of Mitzrayim, for example, and they're singing in Az Yashir Moshe, what do they say? Megidash Hashem konenu yadecha. We're going to establish, there's going to be established a Megidash. There's going to be a sacred place. There's going to be a sanctuary that's established. Now, it's not emphasizing sacrifices per se. It's not emphasizing sacrifices. Beta Megidash isn't primarily about sacrifices. Sacrifices happen there, but it's not essentially about sacrifices. That isn't the main uh, purpose of the Beit HaMikdash even. It's, it happens to be that sacrifices were only allowed to be brought in the Beit HaMikdash, but it's not necessarily true that the main function of the Beit HaMikdash was the sacrifices. The main function of the Beit HaMikdash is it's a place where people can go, come in order to focus on the existence of Hashem, standing in the presence of God. What do we say? What is, the, what is Shlomo HaMelech? If you open up, who is the first person to build the Beit HaMikdash, the real Beit HaMikdash, right? Obviously, Moshe Rabbeinu made the Mishkan, and then there were other locations that the Mishkan was moved to before the Beit HaMikdash was built. But when, when Shlomo HaMelech built the Beit HaMikdash, there's a long tefillah. It's in, it's in the beginning of Sefer Melachim Aleph. And Shlomo HaMelech, it's a very beautiful tefillah. It's so beautiful that many people have asked me, how come it wasn't incorporated into our prayers ever? We don't have it incorporated into our prayers. It's such a beautiful prayer. But it's very, uh, it's very long. But the theme, if you look at that tefillah, you look at what Shlomo Melech said. Even though he brought a lot of sacrifices when he dedicated the Beit HaMikdash, in his entire prayer, he never mentioned sacrifices. He says that a person will come to this place who is in trouble and they will pray to Hashem and Hashem you will hear them. Or we will have a war come, a, you know, war will come to the land and we will turn to God and we'll pray towards this place and you Hashem will hear us and will answer us. He gives all different scenarios of situations where a person would pray to God and they would either come to the Beit HaMikdash or they would face the Beit HaMikdash when they are praying, imagining as if they were in the Beit HaMikdash and Hashem will answer them. And he emphasizes each time, you will hear from heaven, meaning don't think that Hashem like lives in the Beit HaMikdash, that would be wrong. The Beit HaMikdash is a place that represents Hashem's presence on earth. Okay? So, in, so really Shlomo Melech emphasizes, emphasizes the idea of tefillah when he talks about the Beit HaMikdash. What is tefillah? Tefillah is the experience of standing before Hashem. The, now, that's something that a person can experience anywhere. In theory, a person can stand anywhere and close their eyes and realize that they're in the presence of Hashem at any moment. But as human beings, we benefit from having an environment 
that cultivates a certain awareness. That's why we have synagogues. That's why we have schools. That's why we have any kind of an institution that, where you have a space that's dedicated to a certain activity. It's because we as human beings, our environment influences us. And when we have an environment that is heightening our awareness of something or focusing us in on something, we experience it more intensely and all distractions are removed. So the idea of the Beit HaMikdash is not that Hashem's presence is oh, more in one place than any other place. That this place is designated to heighten people's awareness of God. And so therefore, it makes sense that it would be the place people would bring sacrifices to God because it represents the conduit, the channel through which we relate to God. That's how it attains its status of being a, such a holy place that we designate it as the place where we approach Hashem. Hashem's presence is manifest to us. So what does that mean? That means we're, okay, if there are korbanot, we're going to bring korbanot in that place. If there is going to be a, a what other play, ways do we approach God? Through prayer, we approach God. So it's a bet tefillah. It's called the house of prayer. Yishayahu, the Navi says, Ki beti bet Even though at the beginning of the Pasuk is, all of your sacrifices will be, will be accepted on my altar, okay? But the end of the Pasuk is, that my house will be called the house of prayer for all the nations of the world. It's primarily a bet tefillah. It's primarily, what is tefillah? It means the mental awareness, not the physical. Even a korban that you bring is only as good as the kavanah that you have behind it anyway, right? If, if the person is a, 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 it doesn't, isn't right with God and personally, then their, then their korban means nothing. A korban is only something that has significance as an expression of a connection with God that already exists. If a person is corrupt, then we say, this is the offering of a, a wicked person is an abomination. Why is it an abomination? Because it makes it look like somehow, why does a wicked person bring a korban? Because they want to imply that God is validating them. I brought a korban. It's like a person who, who, who you know, does uh, uh, corrupt dealings and then gives a lot of charity. They, they feel like, oh, they're, they're wiping their hands clean of whatever corrupt things they do by, by giving, uh, giving charity. A lot of people do that. There's a lot of bad people that they, they steal and they cheat and then they feel, oh, but because I'm, because I'm being charitable, it, it wipes away my, my bad deeds. Okay? Isn't it still better to do the act of charity than to not do that at all? I'm not saying it's not better. I'm just saying that it's, it, you're fooling yourself if you think that it erases the bad thing that you did, Right? So a korban, like if a person brings a korban for a sin that they did, but they didn't do teshuvah, then the korban is not a, is not really a korban. It doesn't even count, right? Yeah, for forgiveness, a person brings korban for certain things, or um, they have to be internally, huh? Yeah, gratitude one is a different. I mean, even there, you bring the korban, you're supposed to say words of thanks to God when you bring it. You don't just slaughter an animal. It's been, it, most of the korbanot are a meal. Most of the korbanot involve eating the meat. There are very few korbanot, only certain korbanot, korban ola, that's totally burnt. Most of the korbanot are, uh, are eaten. And the idea is that you're celebrating your closeness to God by eating and drinking, just like we do on a Yom Tov. We celebrate our closeness to God by eating and drinking. You know, it's a, it's a, it's that by bringing the korban, you sort of set a framework. You come into the Beit Hamikdash. You you stand before God. You have this heightened sense of uh, of Hashem's presence, and then the eating is in that is in that sort of uh, you know comes from that mental state of awareness and and uh, and connection to God. But it, it ultimately it's about kavana. Ultimately, it's about awareness. And so korbanot are secondary to the real purpose of the Beit Hamikdash. The primary purpose of the Beit Hamikdash is 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 kedusha. It's holiness, which means uh, an awareness of that which is, above, is beyond the physical, an awareness of Hashem. 
And, um, and so that's why the other thing that you find in the Beit HaMikdash is the Sanhedrin actually was located in the Beit HaMikdash. The high court of Israel was located in the Beit HaMikdash. And you might think, well, that doesn't really fit. Why would you put the court that's, that's dealing with halakha, dealing with issues of Torah, studying Torah and teaching Torah, why would they be in the Beit HaMikdash? But it's important to realize the reason it's a very, because in fact, the, the Gemara says that the reason why one of the reasons why that mountain, Haram Moriah, was chosen is because it straddles Shevet Yehuda and Shevet Binyamin, these two Shvatim. Okay, Shevet Binyamin, Binyamin wanted the Beit HaMikdash to be on his territory, but Shevet Yehuda is where the Sanhedrin has to sit in Shevet Yehuda. So therefore, the Beit HaMikdash has to be on both. So the, so the altar that brings the Korbanot is in Binyamin's territory, but the place where the, where the Sanhedrin sit and study Torah is in Yehuda's territory because they wanted to have the two. But why are the two, why do they have to be together? Because these are different ways we serve God. We serve God through prayer. We serve God through sacrifice. We serve God through learning Torah and, and, and deepening our knowledge of Hashem. They all go to, you can't have one without the other. A person who, is, who prays but with no knowledge at all doesn't understand anything about Hashem or isn't advancing in their understanding of Hashem. So they're not growing in their avodat Hashem because your tefillah is only as good as your knowledge, always. Your tefillah can't be better than your knowledge. So your tefillah is always as good as your knowledge. So if a person has an idea of Hashem, if a six-year-old child has an understanding of Hashem that is very basic, so their prayer to Hashem is, is going to be based on that understanding of Hashem that they have that's very basic. If a person has a very, as Moshe Rabbeinu, so their tefillah Meaning how, what does tefillah mean? It means how I see myself. I'm standing before God, how I see myself in the presence of God. So how I'm going to, that's going to be based on my own understanding of Hashem. And if it's very limited or very childish understanding, it's going to be, that, that's all I'm going to be able to get out of it. If it's a very advanced understanding, it'll be better. But that's why there's also another pasuk in Mishlei that says that if you turn your ear away from Torah, your tefillah is also an abomination. Meaning, if you really want to do a meaningful tefillah, you have to be learning. You have to be understand. You have to want to come to a greater understanding of Hashem. And through the greater understanding, your tefillah becomes more meaningful. And then from your more meaningful tefillah, your ability to understand more becomes, you know, it becomes increased. And so it's a, it's a cycle and a, a, of growth in that way. But that's why you have Torah, you have tefillah, and you have korbanot. Korban, I just want you to understand, a korban means that I'm devoting my material resources to God. It's a way of expressing that. It's a way of expressing that my, my physical resources, my material resources are dedicated to God. I do that symbolically, you could say, by bringing it to the Beit HaMikdash and offering it as a korban. But that's the message that I'm supposed to be getting from. Right. Right, right. That's part of the symbolism behind it, right? But not all sacrifices are a sin. Only a few. I mean, you don't know, right, but you're right. Yeah, I mean, a sin offering is realizing that it's the animal part of you that leads you to do a sin. And you're saying... Yeah, it's like mine, right. Right, it's, a, it's symbolic of that. It's the idea that our, our bodily aspect is what causes us to do sins. 
and we're recognizing that, you're also externalizing the sin, which is one of the points that a lot of the, that the Ralbag talks about, the Rambam talks about a little bit too, meaning that a person who, let's say, has a flaw, sometimes feels it's part of who I am. So I'm ne- I, it's part of who I am that I do, that I do this bad thing. It's my identity. I can't, I can't separate it from my, myself. And even if I stop doing it, I'm always going to be the person who did that bad thing. So what's the point of trying to be- become better? Because I'm always going to feel stained by this bad thing that I did, tainted by it, right? So the korban allows you to externalize it and say, actually, the part of me that did the sin is the animal part of me. That's not me. It's a, I, 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 can, I can put the sin on this animal. Obviously, it's symbolic, but I can put the sin on this animal and say, I'm finished with it. Okay, it's not the essence of who I am. It's something separate from that. And I had mentioned actually on, uh, uh, when I was here on Shabbat Shuvah, and I spoke at the Sudash Dishit. I was talking about how in the Hatarat Nidarim that we do, which was written by the Chida, he says a similar thing. At the end of the Hatarat Klalot, or, uh, you know, that we read, he says, you know, I, I, I also want to say that any bad thing that I do, right? It sort of sounds strange. Any bad thing that I do, any bad thought that I have, anything that I do with the wrong kavanah, anything that I have, a, a, I have a, an evil thought, any, any of these things, I'm nullifying all of it. I'm nullifying it and saying that I reject it and I nullify it. How, how can you do that with, a, with your sins that you didn't even do yet? Like anytime I do anything that's not in accordance with the Torah, I just want to say that my desire is to serve Hashem and anything that I do that's not in accordance with that, I nullify it. What's the idea behind it? Obviously, you can't really do that, right? It doesn't really work. But, the, but I think there's a message there, meaning the idea is that a person should realize you can separate yourself from the, the, from the part, from, from what you've done wrong. It's not you. It's not, you, you made a mistake, but it's not you. So it's trying to teach you that idea that you can say, I nullify it, meaning I can look at the things I do wrong as not the essence of me. Because in order to be able to grow, you have to be able to envision a life without doing that wrong thing. Let's say a person's a smoker, okay? Hopefully nobody is, but let's say a person is a smoker, right? They can't envision life without the cigarettes. They can't, that's part of the problem. They can't, they can't imagine life without that. So if you can't imagine life without that, how are you ever going? It, it's part of who I am. This is me. I've, so it's a lot of these people, they were smoking since they're 14 years old. I, I can't think of myself without it. How am I going to function without it? Or nowadays you have kids that they think the phone is an appendage of their body. Right? It's not, it's not a, an electronic device. It's my third hand is my phone. You know, I can't live without it. How could I exist without a phone? Or whatever. A person has an attachment, an addiction to something. They can't imagine separating themselves from that addiction, whatever it might be. And so what, it's part of what the Chida's prayer is to tell you that you should realize you can nullify it. Not that that really solves the problem. If you're not, that doesn't like, you can't preemptively say that, oh, whatever sin I do, I don't mean it, so I can just go do sins. That's not the idea. But the idea is to realize that whatever I do wrong, I shouldn't let it define me. Don't let it define you. Realize that, okay, you made a mistake, you made a, but you could still uproot it and you'll be the same you. You'll be a better you. It's, it's not you. So I think that's an important idea to keep in mind. But that's part of what the Korban that you're mentioning. That's part of what the Korban is. Now, but I, what, what I want everyone to understand is that the main purpose of the Beit HaMikdash is not Korbanot. It's an aspect of what goes on there. And, it's a, and the Korbanot demonstrate that our physical life is instrumental to our service of God. We do that through bringing a korban. If you think about 
You, most of the time when a person would bring a korban to the Beit HaMikdash, it's a barbecue, basically. You bring it and you eat the meat. That's most of the time. If you sometimes sacrifice an animal and it's totally burnt on the altar, that is to recognize God. Just like, you know, it's, it's a way of, just like fasting, you totally sometimes uh, give up any kind of, uh, you completely sacrifice the physical for the sake of recognizing that there's something higher than that. Right, but a yom tov is where you take the physical, you take the meat, you take the wine, and you celebrate. And your this celebration is in the presence of God and is bringing you closer to God. Right, and that's what most korbanot are. Most korbanot involve eating the meat of the korban. So it's the idea that we're directing our physicality towards a higher purpose. But the Beit Hamikdash is not only about that; it's also about learning Torah. It's also about one of the reasons that one of the reasons for the mitzvah of coming to the Beit Hamikdash. The Sefer Chinuch talks about it a lot. And the Sephorno talks about it too. They talk about how uh, coming to the Beit HaMikdash were many mitzvot that were required. There was like certain tithes you had to bring to the Beit to, to Yerushalayim to eat it in Yerushalayim. Not necessarily in the Beit HaMikdash, but you had to come to Yerushalayim. Or you had to bring certain offerings in, to Yerushalayim. If you had a Bukhor, firstborn animal, you had to bring it. Why do you have to, or, or your one-tenth if you had a tithing of the animals, you had to bring it up to Yerushalayim. Why? Because when you would come to Yerushalayim, it wasn't just about being in a certain city. You would talk to the Kohanim, you would see the Chachamim, you would see the rabbis, you would end up learning Torah, you would get inspired by it. In other words, it would be, an, it would be a learning experience. It's not just about the physicality of the Beit HaMikdash. It's a learning experience. So for us, as a, a nation that yearns to connect to God, the Beit HaMikdash focuses all of the, it's like nowadays you might have different rabbis all over the place and different spiritual leaders and different sources of inspiration and some are good and some are bad and some are okay and some are, you know, uh, imagine having consolidated together all of these sources of education and all of these, re, all these resources working together cooperatively to be able to educate the Jewish people and the Jewish people as a whole coming to this place to be educated and to, and to cooperate together to, uh, you know, to work towards a common goal, which we don't have today. We have communities that cooperate within the community, but we don't have a sense of national unity that we're cooperating together towards a common goal of serving Hashem, of sanctifying Hashem's name. People do that hopefully on their own in little ways. They, they do Kiddush Hashem, but we're not doing it collectively. We don't have a way to do it collectively. And so the goal of the Jewish people is to sanctify God's name and the Beit HaMikdash is the institution that's supposed to be the way that we do it, right? It's our platform to do it. Keep, it's supposed to be a house for all the peoples of, of, of the world, meaning that all the people of, of the world are going to come there and they're going to be, just like Avram Avinu was trying to spread the word of Hashem to the world, we're supposed to do that from the platform of the Beit HaMikdash. So we get inspired by the Beit HaMikdash, but then the Beit HaMikdash is also a place that we, we spread to the world knowledge of God and awareness of God as, as a nation. We don't have a way to unify our efforts as a nation. We don't have a way to grow as a nation. Everybody has their own rabbi, a rabbi here, rabbi there, different rabbis. Some of them, they're all on diff- all different levels. Imagine if all the rabbis were unified together and they were all working together and they were all learning from each other and correcting each other when they needed to, and they were advancing each other's learning and becoming much better from that, you know? And then they were working together for the benefit of the of Am Yisrael, instead of being separated out in so many different places. Imagine how much better the education would be. Imagine how much more we would learn and imagine how much further we would advance. And then you would have a whole system in place for bringing everybody to the Beit HaMikdash on a regular basis so that they would be able to draw from that. And it would be like, I, I think of it as like, you know how they have conventions like a, a lot of times you have like weird conventions like of comic book people or weird, you know, nerds, I don't know, Star Wars pe- conventions, I don't know. You know uh, most of them are, are, are nerdy conventions, but they have like fashion stuff also, like I guess that's for cool people or 
whatever. You know, they have different things that people go that are in a certain that are in a certain world, let's say, and they come to these to these different conventions. Or like, there's actually there's there there are Jewish ones too. There's like a they're like Yemeiun Bitanach, where people come from all over, let's say Israel or in America, they have them in America too. People come from all over the country for like three days. They come to a hotel and they just learn Tanakh with the greatest teachers that there are. And I've been to them. I used to come. They used to have them. Uh, I think they still they still have them. Like once a year, they have it here in in, in New York. I used to come even when I lived in Washington D.C. I would come and you would have the best teachers all under one roof and you would choose your classes and it would be amazing. So like, and you would be around other people who came to do that. So you're around like people who have the same values and you get inspired by them and you hear their questions and you have their their input. It's like that's an experience. So like, imagine that at a national level that you would have that kind of a an experience of everybody working together, each person at their own level, the best of the best teachers with all their, you know, pooling all of their resources for the sake of the people, it would really be something. I mean, when I envision that, it's amazing. So like you can have a taste, It's le- and the, the holidays were like going to one of these conventions. You know, a convention in whatever your field is, where you go and you hear the best of the people in your field, and they're inspiring you, and they're educating you, but for our field is the field of, of living life the right way and, and serving God. So like that's what we would be going to the convention for. And, and, and imagine that. So like, and it even talks about like the nations of the world seeing the Jewish people going up Ali al how inspiring it would be. You know, Lahavdil, many, many, many Havdalot, you see like the Muslims go to the Hajj and they go to, the, they go to Mecca, you know? You're like, wow, millions, I don't know how many go. They all go from all these countries all over the world, they come together. And you see like, okay, there's something, what a, it's a different, obviously a different system and a different religion and it's, I don't want to get into that, but just saying the idea that they're coming from all over the world to be together and to show their unity and the fact that they're all committed to one God has like, you can, that's impressive and it means something and that, that's what we would have as well. So that's part of what the Beit HaMikdash, the, the role that the Beit HaMikdash would serve and what we're really missing is that sense. So if you're feeling like lost, you're feeling like, hey, I, I hear different answers from different rabbis. I don't really know what the real direction is. I want to know what the, what the real truth is. I wish that we as a nation could work together towards a common goal and not everybody be going on their own track. You know? That's what the Beit HaMikdash was, was supposed to accomplish for, for everybody. But yes? Well, according to the Rambam, that nature will continue, we'll definitely still be arguing. Uh, that, would, that would be a miracle, changing nature, you know, for people to stop arguing. Arguing is good. Arguing is actually not bad. Fighting is bad. Arguing is good. Yeah, they'll argue and they'll come to a conclusion. But the, what they had in the times of when they had a Sanhedrin was they had a conclusion in the end. Okay, the consensus is this. There might still be certain... Right, respectful for the sake of truth, argument is good. If right, if, right, if two people are arguing and they're arguing real, when you go into I, you know, the the uh, the Gemara says in in Masechet Kiddushin, it says that you'll have two rabbis arguing, and it lo- and they feel like they're fighting a war against each other. Not rabbis, two students, two whoever, two people learning to run. They're arguing. It looks like they're fighting, but at the end, they love each other even more. Right, even now it should be like that. But, you know, I mean, if you go into a, a Beit Midrash, you'll hear people yelling at each other, especially like, uh, 
you know, the Batei Midrash of the, you go into a big Beit Midrash, everyone's screaming. I remember I once took one of my congregants that we were in Israel and we went into Pot Yosef, we went into the Beit Midrash for one second. Like, why is everyone screaming at each other? I'm like, it's hard to explain, but, uh, but they love each other. So why are they screaming? Because they're argue, they each have a different view of something and they're trying to, they're arguing their point. But they love each other, actually. They wouldn't, they wouldn't want to study without the partner that they're studying with. They love it. So there's, a, there's actually a very famous uh, story in the Gemara Masechet Baramitziah about Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish. That Rish Lakish was a, uh, he was actually a career criminal. And Rabbi Yochanan saw him and he said, you know, if only you took that energy that you have to do bad and you became, you studied Torah, you would be, I would let you marry my sister. You'd be so amazing. And he's like, okay, I'll take you up on it. And so, uh, and so Reish Lakish became this great rabbi, but he also became the chavruta and the study partner of Rabbi Yochanan and they were very attached to each other. And then it so happened that one day, uh, I, I don't want to go into all the details. They had a little bit of a falling out later on, but Reish Lakish died. And, um, and Rabbi Yochanan was extremely distressed. Extremely, he was extremely distressed by the loss of Rish Lakish and he couldn't, he couldn't go on. So the other rabbi said, well, you know, we'd better provide a new chavruta to, to, to Rabbi Yochanan so he can move on because he can't deal with this that he doesn't have uh, his study partner. So they brought him another rabbi. And every time Rabbi Yochanan would say X, the other rabbi would say, oh, I have a proof for that. Here's a proof that you're right. And here's a proof that you're right. And here's a proof that you're right. And we give him a hundred proofs. And he kept doing that for, I don't know how many times they studied together. And then finally, Rabbi Yochanan had enough. He's like, look, when I, you, I don't, I already know that I'm right when I say something. I don't need you to tell me that I'm right. He said, when I had Rish Lakish, I would say something and he would give me a hundred proofs that I was wrong. Okay. And because he gave me a hundred proofs I was wrong, my idea became clearer. My idea developed. I, I refined my thinking and I had to defend it. That's how you become better. You're not helping me. Right? You don't want a yes man. You, know, you want somebody. Arguing is good because it leads to clarity. You go back and forth. You ask questions. That's good. Right? So arguing, I would say, would continue because our minds, that's how our mind grows from hearing the different sides and from hearing, being contradicted and, 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 and getting new evidence in and, and we develop our, our understanding and that's, that's amazing. The di- difference is that instead of it being, oh, this rabbi has his, his, his Kiruv organization raising money over here and this one is doing that and this one this. No, we would all pull our, our, our resources together uh, you know, towards one common goal for the entire nation, we still would have to have some outreach to the people who know less or know more or come from this background or come from that background. That's always going to be. But imagine how different it would be if we were all working together, all unified. So not only would our growth be more effective and our learning would be more meaningful and there would be a curriculum for everybody, you know, but our, our tefillah would be better, our understanding of why we're doing the mitzvot and and, and, and the significance of them would be, would be deeper uh, and the korbanot would have a meaning, they would have a role, but that wouldn't be the main thing, that would be an expression of an understanding we already had, you know? It would be a demonstration of something that was already there, a demonstration that we're devoting our resources to serving God. But ultimately, the Beit HaMikdash then, people would look at it and say, wow, what kind of a nation is this? That all of their energy and all of their resources and all of their focus is on getting to know God and to live by the truth of, of, of Hashem's wisdom. That's incredible. That's inspiring. We want to be a part of it. And that's why the Navi says, and the Navi says it in more than one place. It says in Yishayot, 
it says it in you know in different ways in a number of places, but like uh, you know the, the idea that we're go let's go to the house of God. The nations will say let's go to the house of God and learn from the Torah and learn from the wisdom of Torah because we see this nation that has a wisdom that we wanna we wanna draw from it, we wanna gain from it. And the only example in history that we ever saw of that being realized was in the times of Shlomo Melech when the Queen of Sheba comes and she's like, wow, you know, your wisdom is so incredible and your servants are so fortunate that they get to hear it. And that's really what the Jewish people are supposed to be to the world. We're supposed to be learning and growing ourselves, but then we end up being a model for the, for the world and the world wants to be a part of that. And the world says, yeah, what are we doing? We're doing nonsense and these people are doing something incredible. Why don't we become a part of that? You know, we, we, want, we want to become a part of that. They're living such a meaningful life and they're living such a wise life and, a, and, a, and we, we, want to, we want to be able to follow them and emulate them and that's what we're supposed to be. And uh, even, even Alexander the Great, so the story goes, you know, the reason why Alexander the Great didn't, you know, when he was conquering the world, he saw the Jews and he said, I'm going to conquer everybody, but these people, these people are chachamim. When he saw the Jews, he's like, oh, this is, diff- these are, he was trying to, to, to civilize the barbarians, so to speak, you know, the, which meant every culture that wasn't Greek, right? So he, he wanted to civilize them. But when he saw the Jews, he said, these people are, are different. They're not, they're not barbarians. So like, imagine if we had a way to broadcast that to the world. We weren't arguing with each other. We weren't divided. And we had one institution that focused all of our energies. Imagine if we had Mecca, okay? Love deal, you know? Um, that's, they have, you know, even they fight over it and they, whatever, but that's another story. But they, um, but the point is to have one central place that everybody would point to and say, this is the place to go. This is the, this is the place to hear where, what does it say? This is where the Torah is going to come from. This is where, this is where wisdom is going to come from, 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 to the world. It's a big zechut. So that's what the, the Mashiach is, the, building the Bet HaMikdash means that the, the Mashiach is achieving his purpose or putting it in motion of being the, the, the Jewish people being the ambassadors of Hashem to the world. That requires two things. That requires having a center that they come to to elevate themselves and to focus their own service of God. But it's also a platform and a vehicle to spread that inspiration to the rest of the globe. That shows why did Shlomo Melech want to build the Beit HaMikdash? Why did the Jews, when they crossed the sea, say we need to have a Beit HaMikdash? Because they understood our purpose is to create this institution, first of all, to, fo- to, to uplift our own closeness to God, but, but ultimately, ultimately, to uplift the world. That's the purpose of it, it's to uplift the world. And so uh, that's why Shlomo Melech did that, because he said, okay, now that the, that, that, that the nation of Israel has a, has a stable monarchy, we have a government, we have a state, we have a, we, all of these things have, have been now uh, stabilized and established. Now the time comes to build the Beit HaMikdash, which is really the ultimate purpose of having a Jewish country, a Jewish nation. It's to, folk, it's to show, what does the Beit HaMikdash show? The king is the political leader, but my kingship, says the king, meaning Shlomo Melech saying, is only subordinate to the real king. The real king is Hashem. And the Beit HaMikdash is the palace, so to speak. So Shlomo Melech built his own palace, but he built the palace of the Beit HaMikdash, which is higher than his own palace, meaning it's a place he creates, the king of Israel or the Mashiach creates a Beit HaMikdash to show that I might be the leader, the earthly leader, but the real leader, the real king is Hashem. And my power is all just there to be an instrument to glorify God. And if the king says that, then what does that mean about the rest of us? 
then obviously that's all that our kochot and all of our strengths and resources are just for that too, right? And the king doesn't just say that individually. He says that as an international figure, my purpose as, a, as the lead, head of state is also to bring other heads of state to recognize God. So what does David HaMelech say? He says, I speak of your statutes in front of kings and I'm not embarrassed. Meaning he, t- he would talk to all the kings. Now, Shlomo Melech brings the queen of Sheba in. Chizkiyahu uh, welcomes uh, delegations from other countries. Of course, he botched it. He was supposed to talk to them about the greatness of God, and he didn't, and that's why he didn't end up getting to become the Mashiach. That was part of the tragedy of Chizkiyahu, that he could have been the Mashiach, but because he didn't use the opportunity to glorify God and do his, you know, fulfill his role as the Mashiach, that's why he lost it. But it shows you what the role of the Mashiach is. So for us to be able to achieve the real purpose of everything that we're doing isn't achieving its purpose. Your little Kiddush Hashem in your independent life is wonderful, but it's not achieving an international impact. It's not accomplishing what the Jewish people are really supposed to be doing. We're not doing it as a nation. We're doing it as individuals or small pockets of individuals, communities. And our, imp- our, our effect on the world is diluted. It's not... It, it, it's not on a global, uh, you know, on a global scale. That's that's what's missing. That's what the Beit Hamikdash w- would come to fix. Yes. Right. He's the leader. Well, like we said in the first class, I mean, it's more like there could be many potential individuals that have the ability to become that. Even Moshe Rabbein, right. That's right, that was a unique case. I don't know that that would be. We don't really know. We don't, it's not, the, it, we don't really know. Like Avram Avinu, was he chosen when he was born? I don't, I don't know, I don't think so. You know, I don't think it's necessary. In, in Moshe Rabbeinu's case, it was necessary for that to happen because otherwise he would have been thrown into the river. Right, but I, I don't think that... Yeah. I'm sure there's some divine. I'm sure there's some divine providence involved in him becoming what he's going to become, right? Right. But in the end, he could. Right. But in the end, if he botches it and doesn't make the right decisions, he can lose it. Because even Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, if you remember, in the beginning of Shemot, Moshe Rabbeinu is chosen by God, and he's on his way to Egypt, and he stops at a hotel, and he almost dies. It says, Hashem was going to kill him. Why? Because he didn't give up Brit Milah to his son. Why would Hashem do that after everything else? Okay, so he'll get another person. It's all right. You know, meaning there's no absolute choices from Hashem's perspective. He can always, he always has uh, another shaliach. So he may, maybe would have to take some time to produce another person like Moshe Rabbeinu. But on Hashem's clock, uh, time is very, uh, yeah, a thousand years is a minute. A person could be, lose it. Right, so that's why it says Shlomo Melech was chosen potentially to be Mashiach, but he didn't make it. Chizkiel was chosen potentially, but he didn't make it because he didn't fulfill the mission. So we don't declare someone Mashiach until they fulfill the mission, even though it might be that God was involved in preparing that person to be able to become that person, you know, to be able to fulfill the role. If they don't go along with it, since a human has free choice, you know, then that will be it. Okay, any other questions? Yes.
Okay. Well, uh, it's hard to give. Like, there's probably a lot of different fronts that it has to happen on. I mean, obviously, in, in improving Jewish education across the board is always good, because the more Jews are educated and understand and know and and are not uh, taken in by, let's say, other kinds of education that is not necessarily true to what Torah education should be or or isn't imparting to them the right values or is some kind of like a cult or uh, any other sort of thing or they're getting brainwashed um, or they're just becoming secularized which is another kind of brainwashing in my opinion um, any of these uh, you know so Jewish ed- strengthening Jewish education is really important strengthening tzedakah is really important because it does say that like tzedakah is going to be the the real Goal, you know, the real uh, vehicle to Geulah coming because tzedakah means that we start actually, instead of seeking to show how much better we are than everyone else, we actually uh, invest ourselves in helping one another in a genuine way. And I think that that's uh, a big part of it. So education and social, you know, social unity in terms of tzedakah and uh, obviously Israel is important like the state of Israel is important because um, that's where it's all supposed to happen and without the geographical unity of being in Israel it will be hard to achieve the, uh, the sense of unified purpose that is supposed to be accomplished but I, I'm sure that there's a lot of small steps in between meaning I see a lot of good happening there's a lot of amazing uh, uh, revitalization of, of Torah learning, especially in Israel, but also here in America. Uh, I think that, uh, and I don't know about other countries, I don't have much experience, but um, I think that there's a general movement towards deeper understanding of Torah. Not just like following customs, but really getting to understand and learn Torah, which is I th- very, very promising. I think it needs to be matched by more chesed initiatives that are... Uh, you know that that uh, are a challenge because a lot of people who are learning to they're not as interested in doing that, but they need they need to do that. It's um, it's a, it's a part of real understanding. Avraham Avinu was involved in Chesed. Um, it's the Gemara talks about two Amoraim. It says one of them lived, you know, to be in his fifties, I think, or his forties, because he he only learned Torah, but the other one lived into his seventies, you know, because he also did Chesed. Like it's a uh, it's meaning that he only did, the other one was only doing half the job. You know, part of the job is, is, is chesed and is giving people the, you know, that creates unity. That creates um, the communal unity when you, have, when you have chesed. So I think both of these are, are critical to the foundation of what we need. But you said you had more than one question. You have to think about also that um, the korbanot, your, uh, uh, the average individual, right? There's a lot of slaughtering of animals going around on all the time, right? 
So the average person's involvement with slaughtering is pretty limited. Even today, even though you eat meat, I assume, most of us do, you eat meat at least somewhat. So, uh, right, I know, no, I'm just saying, right, we're not involved with slaughtering in general. So like the truth is that if you, even in a time where you had a bit the Mikdash, the amount that you would be involved in that would be very limited because you would go there a few times a year and have certain korbanot that you brought, but it would be like, it would be a very limited exposure to that, um, first of all. Second of all, we're somewhat culturally biased because I think if we lived in Iran, we would be saying, well, of course, you brought your sheep to the rabbi and he did the shkita right there, you know, whatever, like they used to do, you know. It's like we're just alienated from because we live in America. But I'm not so sure that that's true of everyone. Um, Somewhat culturally biased. But the other side of it is that this, that we slaughter animals and we eat animals for our own appetites, right? And we don't have any problem with that. But the idea that slaughtering an animal could be part of an activity that heightens your awareness of God is a problem. Why is that? You know what I'm saying? Meaning, we're okay. It makes perfect sense that I would take the life of an animal for my own appetite and throw away the rest of it basically because you drain out the blood and you throw the rest in the garbage. But the idea that that could be in a framework that makes me think about what the meaning of life is, the different, you know, the, the transcendence of God, the fact that there's an animal part to me and also a metaphysical or soul that I have and that, you know, that it would enable me, it would educate me as well as being a source of meat, that shouldn't be a problem, it should be better. Meaning, if I'm slaughtering animals anyway. So I always felt like as long as we're slaughtering animals anyway, why not slaughter them in a framework that also is educational and also is, you know, enlightens us and, and helps us understand where the life of the animal comes from. Because right now we just take the life of the animal, we just eat the meat, but the idea of bringing it to the Beit HaMikdash is saying this life came from God. Just like our animal physical life comes from God, the, the life of this animal came from God, and I'm, so to speak, returning it to, to God. It makes me recognize the source of life, recognize the difference between animal life and human life, which is, is a step above it, you know? And, it, and really, all of Kashrut, I think I've mentioned before, all of the way that we treat animals in Kashrut is based on the Beit HaMikdash. It's not the other way around. We usually think, like, oh yeah, kashrut is the normal way of dealing with animals and the Beit HaMikdash is the exceptional way, but it's actually the opposite. Every halakha that we do is based on the Beit HaMikdash. The shechita, halachot of shechita are learned from the way korbanot were done in the Beit HaMikdash. Draining of the blood is because the blood would go on the mizbeach. Taking off the fats out that we're not allowed to eat is because those fats would go on the altar of the Beit HaMikdash. Everything you do with an animal when you slaughter it is as much as you, like basically the same thing you would do with a korban except for the offering part. So what you're really saying when you slaughter an animal even now is this would have been a korban, meaning this would have been an act that would be in some way a service of God because everything I do should be a service of God. So even when I'm taking the life of this animal, I should be recognizing that the life of the animal came from God and I'm, I'm taking the life of the animal because God allowed me to and because I'm going to use the energy that I get from eating this animal to nurture my soul. Otherwise, what right do I have to take the life of an animal if I'm also just an animal? Right. Right. An animal, I can slaughter an animal because a lot of the Mepharshim talk about that. I read an article about it recently by uh, uh, a woman, a scholar, her name is like, is, is Yael actually, Yael Shemesh, I think her name Yeah, she, she uh, 
wrote an article about vegetarianism in, in Tehran. She brought all these sources. I just recently read it, read it recently. And it was like, it brought, she, it, she brought a lot of good sources about the idea of eating meat and about the idea of korbanot. And one of the ideas that you find in a lot of the traditional farshim, uh, I didn't realize how many sources there were for that idea, but the, the idea that, look, you're entitled to eat meat because you're higher than the animal in some way. But if you're not, then, then, then why should you be? So the, the, the way that we slaughter the korban is to make us aware that we're taking the life of the animal, but it's only because we're doing it to serve God. Not because we just, we're entitled to it. So when you take it to the Beit HaMikdash, it's the ultimate expression of that. You know what I'm saying? And it sort of like puts all of our meat, like to me, like the Beit HaMikdash, puts all meat consumption into perspective. Even if I'm not going to the Beit HaMikdash with my personal barbecue. But if you're in the Beit HaMikdash, you're not allowed to slaughter an animal that's your personal meat that's not a korban. Because you have the opportunity to show that it really comes from God and that it's really a service of God. So if it, so, in a way, the Beit HaMikdash is like Mikadesh, all of our you know consumption of meat, because it's saying ultimately all the light, the life of the uh, of the animals, and the the permission to to take the life of animals, it all comes from God, and it's only because it's in the service of God. So that's that's really what the Beit Hamikdash is. So I don't. So people who object to it is because they don't understand. I think you know what it's about and what it's for. If that person also objects to any slaughtering of animals, even and they're pure vegan, okay, maybe I can. They have a different like Rav Cook. Was a, believed, you know, in the vegetarianism and that, or maybe veganism. I'm not sure. In the times of the Beit Hamikdash, in the times of Mashiach, so he can be consistent and say that. But a person who's like, oh, we'll definitely have barbecues on the Fourth of July, but we won't have korbanot. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Oh, so but, uh, did, so you, think some vegetarians will still <clears throat> you can't be a successful vegetarian in the times of the Beit Hamikdash a hundred percent because you have like the korban Pesach, so you occasionally have to eat like a small amount of meat to fulfill certain mitzvot. Um, but you know, I, I wouldn't consider that not being a vegan or not being a vegetarian that they eat a piece of meat one time being to me. I mean, I'm, I'm not currently, I was a vegetarian once, but, um, a, a couple of times in my life, but I, I would, I, I wouldn't consider it's not the act of eat, This is my personal view. Maybe a vegetarian would kill me for saying this, but is that my, my personal view is it's not an, the act of eating a piece of meat that makes you not a vegetarian. It's the ideology of eating meat as a regular part of your diet. The fact that you ate a piece of meat one time, you could say, I'm a vegetarian, but for a health reason, I had to eat this piece of meat. You're not not a vegetarian. You still believe in it, but you had to for a certain for a certain point. So no ideology should be higher than the ideology of Torah. So if the Torah tells you that in this one case, you have to eat one piece of meat to show some concept of the Korban Pesach, Okay, that shouldn't mean that you're not a vegetarian now. You had to do it for some higher principle that, you know, but in every other case, you, you're a vegetarian, you know? So I, that, that's possible. I think that it's possible to, to, to think that way. One time, but you have a small piece, right? That, that could be dangerous if you, right? If you're gluten-free for health reasons, if you're gluten-free for, 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 uh, you know, I mean, for diet. But if you're gluten free for like because it's dangerous, then you have to be here. Yeah. like a celiac or something. Regarding your your uh, <clears throat> teaching on Ramban's view on how um, if we if we were to believe in his ideology that we will be immortal and therefore we don't need to eat. Right. So did he believe that we don't eat our korbanot? 
It's a good question what he would say about the Korbanot in the times of the Beit HaMikdash under that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember seeing him talk about that. I just remember him quoting, he quotes the Midrash that says that in, in, the, in the times of Mashiach, he interprets it as meaning the times of Mashiach. The other, the Rambam interprets it as talking about spiritual olam haba. He interprets all of those midrashim as talking about times of Mashiach. It says, lo uchlim velo shotim. There's no eating and drinking. So I guess he would say there's only going to be korban ola. There's not going to, like a burnt korban, there's not going to be any, uh, any korbanot uh, that you eat, I suppose. I mean, I can only guess. It's usually because, I mean, yeah, most korbanot will be obsolete because you won't really need to do any, right, you won't be sinning according to the Ramban, so you won't need that. Yeah, the korban ola is just to recognize God. It's not really, uh, but it's a good question. Yeah, there's a lot of difficulties with the idea that you won't have any bodily, so then most mitzvot, a lot of mitzvot will be obsolete, then the Ramban would say, because you won't need them anymore. I don't know if he says... He doesn't talk about that. There could be a process before you get to that. I would assume there's some kind of a process. Yeah, I don't remember him talking specifically about that, but he's sort of talking about the end result. He, was, he doesn't talk about the exact steps of the process. But, um, but yeah, he would say that most of the mitzvot... I mean, he says most of the mitzvot are not going to be relevant. That's why it always says that you have to do the mitzvot in this world, not the next world. It doesn't mean that olam abad means like this world in times of Mashiach, meaning because most of them won't be relevant anymore because you won't be doing any of those activities anymore. But I also you know? heard that we will be able to keep all 613. He he'll say that that's because it's internalized in you, that you, you're, it's as if. It's like the way that the, like the Avot kept all the mitzvot. They didn't have a Beit HaMikdash. They didn't have, it means that their, their total de- dedication was to Hashem. So it was, it was as if they, they did all the mitzvot. Yeah. No, part of the job of the Meshach is to bring everybody together. Yeah, but, you know, Israel, yes, in theory, yes, but the, the king of Israel can, can expand the borders of Israel. So, um, so the Kiddushah of Eretz Israel could cover the entire world, if you want. Yeah, this could be an extension, you're saying? I don't know about Great Neck. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not making any specific commitment. I'm just saying that you can extend the Kedushat Eretz Yisrael to further territory. So if there was like a problem of the population fitting in Eretz Yisrael, so they could expand. The interesting thing is that biblical Israel, meaning the, the Israel of the Tanah, of the Torah, includes Jordan and, you know, a lot of, you know, other things beyond, the, beyond current Israel. But in Sefer Yechezkel, it doesn't. Sefer Yechezkel, it's just mainland Israel that we have now. So, but halachically, it could be expanded to other territories that the Kedushah of Eretz Yisrael could be, you know, extended to them. So if there was a need for that, that would be possible. Right. Yeah, I'm not I don't know if it would have to necessarily be like contiguous territory with Eretz Yisrael. It could, it's something that, that was claimed... That was claimed. Is that right? And it's considered Right, it would still be disconnected. I mean, the ideal, obviously, would be for the majority of the people to be in, in one place. That doesn't necessarily mean that every single individual will be. There could be that there will be other pockets of people that still are not. It's hard to know. I don't know that we know the answer to that. Well, I guess we'll see. And whose view is it that the 
it's more going along the idea of the Ramban, meaning once you take the Ramban's idea that most physical things, you, your whole nature is going to be different, so then you won't need mitzvot to remind you of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. You won't need mitzvot to remind you of Hashem, tefillin and tzitzit. You won't need bodily mitzvot because it'll be internalized in you. All of these mitzvot are to keep you focused, but you won't need that anymore. So it, it makes a lot of mitzvot um, obsolete and it makes it just being about reflecting on Hashem and tefillah and learning and, and those things and not really about any of the mitzvot that involve the body. You know, what would the relevance be of kashrut if you don't eat? What would the relevance be of uh, marriage if you don't have families and so on? That's what the Ramban says. We'll have to find out when we get there. We'll see. I don't know who's right. We'll find out. So, so the funeral homes will go out of business, according to the Ramban. You know, it's... it's